Thanks for joining us for today's podcast on culturally responsive and socially just assessment. Our guests today are C.G. Heiser, Director of Assessment and Effectiveness at Western Michigan University, Joe Levy, Executive Director of Assessment and Accreditation at National Lewis University, and Krista Prince, Coordinator for Leadership Development at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. We wanted to talk with C.G., Joe, and Krista about the ideas in their article, Examining Critical Theory as a Framework to Advance Equity Through Student Affairs Assessment, from the April 2017 issue of the Journal of Student Affairs Inquiry. Thanks for joining us, C.G., Joe, and Krista, to discuss the intersection of assessment and social justice. I really enjoyed um, the article you put in the Journal of Student Affairs Inquiry, so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that in the, in the coming minutes. But before we discuss your work, could each of you tell us a little bit about yourselves and why you're passionate about this topic? Yeah, thank you for having us today, Evan, um, Gavin and Anne. So I think first, because whoever gets the opportunity to listen to this podcast can't see us, I'll, um, I'll start by kind of describing some of my identities and, and my roles and how I fell into this topic. And so I identify as female, white, cisgender. I um, grew up really in a very low socioeconomic status. I was the daughter of a single mother and a first-generation college student. My life has changed drastically from since then in terms of SES. I'm now more in the upper middle class and I serve as a director of assessment and effectiveness here at Western Michigan University for Student Affairs. Um, I'm also a full-time doctoral student and a wife and a mom to a three-year-old toddler. And part of my dissertation is really focusing on culturally responsive methodologies. Um, and I'll share some resources for that as we get going. But I actually, Krista is the one who came into my office one day when I had the opportunity to work with her for a few years and said, hey, some of the ways that you're approaching assessment work as our assessment coordinator really allow um, for these things to happen. And she started talking to me about critical theory and um, we started talking about this article and we reached out to Joe for some additional perspective. And that's how the the piece started from, from my memory. Um, and I haven't stopped thinking about this work since then. Great, thank you. Joe. Hi, my name is Joe Levy. I'm the Executive Director of Assessment and Accreditation at National Lewis University in Chicago, Illinois. Um, to follow CG's lead, I am a white, cisgender, able-bodied male. And as CG said, this is how the that's how the article came together. Um, I got to piggyback on some awesome efforts that Krista and CG were already working on. Um, I'm also a doctoral student currently, and for me, I'm focusing my um, dissertation work on faculty use of data and faculty engagement with with assessment and you know this has been something that you know, with my accreditation hat on i know we have to demonstrate equivalent learning experience for all students regardless of modality location and so for me i extend that to making sure all of our students are uh, having an equivalent learning experience and that we're providing the support that they need. And so through assessment as well as the accreditation lens, I think this is a very important topic to bring to light and to be doing more work on. 
Great. Thanks, Joe. Krista, last but not least. Hi, everyone. My name is Krista Prince. I'm the coordinator for leadership development in Carolina Housing at UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm also a doctoral candidate in educational studies and cultural foundations at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Uh, I identify as a white cisgender woman, um, now middle class, but also um, grew up lower income and was a first generation college student myself. Uh, I'm a mid-level professional, and I think all of us, you know, really found it important to situate ourselves and think about our positionalities because of the impact that those lenses have on our, the work that we're doing, but then also because many of those identities are quite visible, and so the folks that we're working with are going to see them, and they're going to influence our relationship and rapport building and the way in which we're able um, to do our work. And so I won't uh, repeat some of what CG and Joe already said about how this work came to be, but I'll just say that, you know, as, as doctoral students, students, I think we're quite uh, inquisitive and it's been wonderful to think about how our different fields kind of merge and blend and what that means for the practical application of our work as well. Great. Thank you. I'm looking forward to reading all three of your dissertations when they're done. Sounds like exciting stuff. So one of the things that I think that as I read um, this work, the, uh, one of the undergirding topics is critical theory. And you know, as I've been thinking about assessment more recently and even over the past few years, we haven't really examined the philosophical underpinnings of how we approach assessment, um, but you all do. And so can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by critical theory and, and why is it relevant to this conversation? Sure, and um, this is Kristen, I'll take the lead there. So this is really also the theoretical framework for my entire uh, PhD studies. And so it's been really wonderful to think about what it might mean as a framework for assessment. And so just a little bit of history, um, the critical theorists really began their work in the early 1920s uh, at the Frankfurt School. And it was uh, the Institute for Social Research where that work began. And they were actually analyzing capitalism and the ways in which capitalism perpetuates inequity and domination um, and how it leads some to be in power and others to be without. Um, so so that's kind of the, the origins there, but more recent scholars, and there are a number of different branches of, of critical theory or critical inquiry as well, but um, more recent scholars kind of use that as a framework to think about what norms we kind of take for granted in our work, how can we trouble the status quo, uh, not necessarily taking as truth certain realities, but recognizing that all realities are constructed, how do we center marginalized voices in order to advance equity? Those are some of the questions that they might ask. Um, and with attention to power, critical theorists really analyze um, the socio-political climate and moment and the historical influence upon that in order to expose any issues that exist around power, privilege, and oppression and how those underlie some of our current social conditions. Um, and so when I think about that and the efforts to really uh, support equity and emancipation and how do you have folks who are liberated from some of this domination i think too about just a shift in mindset so um as it might relate to assessment work uh gloria ladson billings has a wonderful reframe that i think um, emphasizes also a, a critical perspective um, so we might talk about the achievement gap in our work but what would it mean instead for us to talk about an educational debt, which shifts kind of the individual performance, and then the focus becomes on the system and the educational system and what we might owe students given historical um, 
aspects of their experiences and the underrepresentation they may have had in the educational system. Um, or perhaps another example of, of reframing, I know most of us have probably seen the quality equity image with um, different size or height folks um, trying to look over the fence, which I'm still wondering why they're not in the stands. But nevertheless, um, the differentiation between equity and equality there is, well, they're different heights. So if we give them different size boxes, then they all can see over the fence equally equally and they have an equitable experience because they're getting what they need. But that still really puts the focus on the individual. And we're trying to think about the system. So what if, in fact, all the humans were the same height, but the ground was sloping? And that was what was affecting why they can't see over the fence. You know, what might our intervention look like then to really address the structure and the foundation? Um, and so I'll just kind of reemphasize critical theory analyzing capitalism and power and production and efficiency. And I think you can see how that connects uh, to education and the connection of education to economics, um, even in how we measure success. So a lot of our metrics are graduation rates, job placement, debt to earning ratio, um, and, and hopefully to some extent student learning, but many of those connect directly to the economy as well. Um, and when we look at ethical standards, uh, either from ACPA or the Association for Institutional Research, some of, of the standards listed are maintaining objectivity and limiting bias, um, you know, aspects that are often considered standards for rigor, like being detached and value-free or objective and rational, these are all, in fact, you know, in many ways problematic um, because they're, they're aspirational. And in fact, if we're not honoring and recognizing that we are subjective humans, we can do more harm than good. And so really from a critical perspective, we would examine power and privilege by and for whom, identify and actually attend to group differences, no matter you know what the N of that group is in our study, um, and really consider what the underlying systemic inequities that produce them are. Um, so I think that's important to mention, and you know, assessments influenced by research standards for rigor and by the scientific method or, or positivistic methods are what lead us to kind of view certain approaches as uh, best practice. So the value-free and the neutral, but really, you know, if we honor our positionality and we think about the influence of bias on our work, we can do much stronger work that actually honors uh, the folks engaging with us and that hopefully addresses systemic barriers to their success. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Krista. Yeah, that's great. Um, I I'm wondering now with that context, um, if perhaps any of you can share what you think historically in higher education and, and maybe in student affairs to some extent specifically, what's been that relationship you touched on a little bit between assessment, that assessment practice that we're engaged in and the diversity, equity, inclusion conversation, either practices and roles or even just thought leadership around that? Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. This is Joe. So, I mean, historically, while assessment's been around and reference of measuring student learning has been around since the early 1900s, really, you know, the 80s and the 90s were the big pickup of uh, assessment activity at higher education institutions. You know, Ewell in 97 talked about you know, the, the two big purposes of, you know, assessment for accountability being summative in nature and uh, assessment for improvement being formative in nature. But in, in bringing up that conversation to, to link it with diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, you have to wonder, well, accountability to or for whom and improvement for whom. Um, 
because there's systems in place uh, that that have interesting implications guiding our work. Um, you know, for instance, IPEDS, the Integrated Post-Secondary Education Data System, asks institutions to report on their students and their institution in a specific way. Uh, and many institutions actually have that reporting. And then they have their secondary reporting that they do for their own institution because that system is not representing all of their students or not giving a true account for the way their institution actually appears and the people that they serve. Um, and so that's a really good example of how, you know, even when we're, you know, if we're following a process and you know, everything's situated within a context and we need to be aware of that and we need to be aware of whether that context is appropriate and inclusive of all the people and experiences that we need to be serving and representing. Uh, there's also an interesting element to the relationship in terms of you know, assessment, diversity, equity, inclusion work, having a bit of symbiotic relationship. You know, assessment evidences and identifies needs, strengths, and it can inform action related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Likewise, diversity, equity, inclusion efforts can include or influence assessment work. And so there's a nice uh, interplay there between the two. But going back to the point of how uh, this can maybe even fit with the critical theory aspect is that you have to wonder you know, who's calling for what information within your institution or externally, and are we representing the true student body and, and all the perspectives and identities and experiences that we should be. You know, um, I, I can share for my institution, we're a newly, relatively newly designated uh, Hispanic serving institution. And it's been a bit of a process to work through what that means and actually embody what that means. And so certainly we have the student population that gives us that designation. But we need to do more than just have those students. We need to uh, put in place the, the supports and and honor their perspectives and their um, and utilize culturally informed pedagogy uh, to support those students, um, which is not something that can happen overnight. Uh, so there's aspects to how an institution operates and the students that they're serving that we need to recognize. And I think that's where assessment can help because if you know, we can look to the assessment data, we can look to student performance data uh, and segment that out by population in order to help us better understand students and experiences. But I think we also need to, going back to Chris's point, we need to recognize that the, the assessment methods we employ can be flawed or they can be, you know, interpreted through a specific lens and, and bias is, is introduced. And so we need to recognize that some of the data that we've collected or the way we've gone about that may need to change because we might not be capturing student experience and student voice, all student voice, uh, the way that it should be captured or in the rich way that, uh, for the story to be told. Great. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. And can you all talk a little bit about why is it, you talked a little bit about this, Joe, about why it's important to think about assessment a little bit differently and, and consider the critical theory aspect of it. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about the, why is it really important for us in higher education to bring these two conversations together and do it in an intentional way? Yeah, this is CG and I'll take a try at that, Gavin. 
I think it's really important to bridge these two conversations together in really intentional ways because we're starting to see a shift in the field in our collective motivations for doing assessment work. So originally it was really accountability focused and that was the motivation. And we know from some research from the National Institute of Learning Outcomes Assessment that our reasons for doing assessment work are also starting to include our own curiosity about our work and the impact um, and who our work is impacting in student affairs. And that means we're also starting to see a shift in the questions that we ask related to our work. And so I think that this conversation is really emblematic of the idea that our questions in higher ed are starting to shift from how do we demonstrate student learning outcomes achievement to how do we demonstrate student learning outcomes achievement at similar rates across different populations. And I think that when we start to bridge these two conversations, it really starts to reposition the assessment practitioner as someone who's a collaborative technical expert in the assessment process, but who's reaching out and across the aisle to students and staff and faculty as content experts in their own experiences. This really starts to break down that kind of uh, historical grounding of assessment practice that Krista was referencing earlier in the scientific scientific method. It starts to break down that apolitical, a-neutral positioning um, of the assessment practitioner. The role of us of the assessment practitioner in this kind of new context where we're bridging these two conversations really starts to account more for ideas of justice and how they're connected to data and recognizes that students really are the experts in their own lived experiences and that our students learn in ways which are as diverse and multifaceted as they are. Um, and so in this context, it really becomes the role of the assessment person to account for the different and valid ways of knowing. Um, and a primary way, we'll talk about this a little bit later, to do this really means you know, collaborating, uh, creating spaces for student voices in defining learning outcomes and picking the measurement tools and helping to write the questions. Um, and I was giving a presentation about this topic at the NASPA 4 East conference a couple of weeks ago. And one of the questions I got was, you know, how did you get comfortable giving up power? right? Like you're the assessment expert and you're going to students to write questions and pick tools and write learning outcomes. And I, my response, I thought that was a really thoughtful question. And my response to that person was, I'm not giving up anything. I'm just creating a bigger table. Um, you know, I still have my thoughts on what I think the best measurement tool is, and we're still going to write well-designed items to measure the student learning experience, whether they're closed-ended or open-ended questions. But at the end of the day, I'm still weighing in. Um, I'm just doing it in a way that isn't in isolation. I'm reaching out, I'm engaging this, the people who matter um, in the learning experience to help define and, and demonstrate their learning. Another way that bridging these two conversations is realized in practice is that when we start to think about the assessment process and assessment work from a critical lens, our traditional tools to do this work really can be transformed into opportunities to do things like critique the status quo or interrogate power, uh, create spaces for agency or, and work towards social justice. And we have some time, so I'm gonna provide a concrete example of that. Um, 
you know, when using assessment for continuous improvement, it can be complemented by a focus on what Joe said earlier, which is improving for who. And also, it really starts to examine systems and structures which may be promoting the inequities that make the improvements either challenging or even necessary. And we've been talking really broadly here, and Joe referenced iPads as like a really good um, concrete example. And so I want to I want to build on some more concrete examples, but. Oftentimes when we use standardized reporting measures or surveys or questions like iPads, there's a couple of, of problems with that. So first, um, the, these like predefined standardized metrics are often singular and simplistic and the people in which they're designed to measure often haven't had the chance to weigh in on that. They haven't had the chance to define um, how they want to be identified. And, and there are lots of reasons for that, right? But I think as we move forward and we start to work with this generation that's really interested in, in clearly identifying who they are in their own terms, it's under it's important for us to understand that as we report this data. And I think sometimes it's also really easy to forget that all of these variables that we collect, whether demographic or otherwise, are really just proxies. They're proxies for lived experiences. And so we as assessment practitioners can really push back on that simplistic and singular viewpoint by using mixed methods, by having methodological diversity. Um, and I was, so as a concrete example of this, I was in a situation once where we were launching a large national survey. We really wanted to be able to break it down by lots of different groups. And one of the groups, this was in North Carolina at the time when there was a lot of legislation and, and things happening around the transgender population. And so one of the groups that we wanted to be able to break the data down by was this group. And so first I had to, I worked with our LGBT center to make sure that I was asking the demographic question in a really inclusive way. I didn't want to ostracize anybody in how I was even putting the question out there. Um, and second, I had to, you know, what I think is interesting first to even acknowledge there is that I had to create the question because it didn't exist. It didn't exist on the instrument that was a national benchmarking tool and it didn't exist already at the institution because the institution wasn't asking that question. And and in that, I was also asking quantitative and qualitative questions of the student experience as part of this larger survey. So after all of that, and I, you know, launch it and I collect the data, when I went back to the leadership team, one of the things I was met with was this idea that, well, we didn't get enough responses, right? My N, my number of respondents wasn't high enough to um, make decisions with. And so I think that um, before we talk any more about this example, I want to just highlight a couple of things. So assessment tools and practices were used to push back on the status quo um, and challenge systems and structures in, in place that shape kind of existing opportunities for meaning making. Um, and how I kind of push back on that idea of the end, and Gavin, you and I have talked about this in other spaces, was this idea that assessment and research are really distinct practices. And the systems and structures in place at that time at that institution didn't allow for us to know what the end of transgender students was on campus. So to say that our end was low, we really didn't know that because the structures in place didn't allow for us to know that. That wasn't a question we were asking on a systematic level. And I think it's, it's really important to understand those systems and structures um, as people who are bridging these two conversations and engaging in this work. And at the end of the day, the last thing that I would say is really important about bridging these two conversations is this idea that how we approach our work matters. And, and just like there are opportunities um, at, across the assessment process at all levels of the organization to integrate justice work, there are also risk in terms of, um, or pitfalls in terms of 
reifying dominant discourses. Where I see this all the time in student affairs is when we when we blame a student population for not being interested or engaged in the opportunities that we're putting out there. And, and so as an assessment practitioner who's bridging these two conversations around critical theory and assessment work, you know, sometimes you're put in that position to shift that dialogue in terms of, well, it's isn't it our responsibility to be engaging? Isn't it our responsibility to provide programs and events that are interesting to all of our students? Um, and so can we ask why? Why aren't our events and programs or services working for different groups? And how can we do better? How can we create a better sense of belonging for all of our students? I think I'll leave it there. There's plenty more that I could say, but I wanna make sure that we have time to get to the rest of our content. Thank you so much, CG. Um, this has been so helpful to me, and I hope to others to listen to you talk about the things that you've written about, and it's really been enlightening, and I, I appreciate the examples that all of you have brought forward, as well as the intersection. And I'm wondering if we could close by each of you sharing um, some of this theoretical space that you've been talking about and the concepts and some of the historical aspects of things, can you give us some tips um, for practitioners to be aware of as they engage in the work of uh, thinking about assessment and diversity, equity, inclusion from a critical theory lens? What practical tips do you have? Yeah, I'll get us started there. This is CG. So I think um, and and Anne and Gavin and I kind of talked about this one time offline, but one of the things that, st that sticks out to me in engaging in this work is that um, as a human <laughs> operating in higher education within a department and a division and institution and then the national and state kind of political climates, you have your own sense of agency. And so you're going to operate within all of these contexts and your sense of agency will be what drives you to make choices about whether or not you engage in this work and how you engage in this work. Because we're at the beginning of pushing these conversations to a national place across assessment and higher education. Um, and so I think you have to figure out where your comfort zone is and where you're willing to push and shove. Um, you know, when we were talking about that example earlier with the N, I had zero qualms about saying, you know, I don't think that's the right way to view this to an associate director in front of a leadership team. But that is just who I am. And that is a choice I made. And just like you have to choose to, or for some of us, it's a privilege to choose or not to, but you have to choose. For me, I choose every day to engage in diversity work um, through my readings, through my conversations. Um, but we know that this work doesn't diversity days and assessment days um, and social justice volunteer opportunities, like those aren't the only place the magic happens. The magic happens in those conversations, um, in those moments in meetings where we push back, where we ask more critical questions, where we say, hey, who are we really talking about here when we're answering this question about sense of belonging? And so my first tip to you is you have to figure out what choices you want to make about using data, what difficulties you'll encounter, and how can you address them to be an advocate. You'll, you may also find yourself needing to even create this space to have these conversations, which is going to look different for every department at every institution. I'll add a couple uh, to that. I think what CG talks about is uh, really important, segues nicely into the second point that we had. But I think once, so 
I'll say you, but one's positionality and privilege or lack thereof really matter in making those choices. And so for me, as someone who, you know, might be marginalized in terms of gender, largely I have predominant predominantly dominant identities and operate in a more privileged space. So one, acknowledging that is important, but two, figuring out ways that I can use that uh, for good and towards equity and towards just ends, which might mean, as CG spoke to, um, you know, saying something in a meeting with folks who have uh, power positionally that you know, another colleague may not be able to say and be received in the same way. Um, and so our second, kind of concept that we think is really important to consider is uh, positionality and reflexivity. So positionality, of course, speaking to how we see ourselves, how others might perceive us and the role that that plays in our work um, assessing and evaluating. And, and that also influences uh, how we approach knowledge and what we know, how we know it, what we see, what we don't see, because it's inevitably shaped by our own experiences and our lenses. Um, and so reflexivity enables us to really continually engage in interrogating that. And so considering how my own experiences and the knowledge that I have and that I'm bringing are influencing perhaps how I'm analyzing data, how I'm thinking about what measures I might use, who I'm engaging in the conversation. And, and that's kind of the ongoing process throughout the assessment cycle of also engaging in reflexive um, practice. Because we're not, I, as much as we might try to be, we are not, I don't think, objective or neutral beings. And honoring that and really thinking about ways to mediate that is imperative. Um, so that's the first one. And the second one, which I think we spoke to already, um, CG talked about earlier, making the table larger um, and involving folks in all phases of the cycle. We like to call that the agency of the participants. So they're not our object of study, but rather they're a subject and an expert on their own experiences as well. And we need that collaboration in our process. Um, so, for example, can we engage students in determining how they might demonstrate learning in a particular course or through a particular initiative that we're developing? Can we involve them in data analysis where it's appropriate? Um, and, and just thinking about the opportunities that exist throughout the assessment cycle to not operate in a silo. I mean, even CG's example of reaching out to a stakeholder in the LGBTQ Center to think about framing a question and how it might be received and how we... Uh, don't, you know, already turn off a particular audience because of our own ignorance. And so how do we how do we aspire to really um, to, to really meet the needs of the folks that we are trying to serve is is really critical. Um, and Joe has a couple of more aspects to add, I think, just to round us out. Yeah, thanks, Krista. And there's, you know, I think to to build off of what she said, I think a really interesting thing for assessment people, especially to keep in mind is how we're often operating in a position of only being able to lead by influence because we often don't have authority over the either faculty or staff that we're working with and trying to get to meaningfully engage in assessment practice. And so therefore this idea of relationships and inviting people to the table and, and recognizing the the perspectives we hold and, and those that we don't uh, is really important. Um, uh, you know, and two quick things. One is I think institutions, especially on the student affairs side, really needs to uh, take a step back and check to see how student-centered they really are. Uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of institutions say they're student-centered, but if you look at your processes, if you look at your practices and the, the, even the language that you utilize uh, in your outcomes or in 
the forms that you provide to students, it can be confusing. You know, I can share as a doctoral student who is in higher education and knows how you know the admission process works and so forth and so on. There were some interesting, confusing pieces to navigate there. At, you know, at, for an for an admission process. And so then it makes me wonder, well, how's a first generation student who doesn't know anything about any of this uh, gonna navigate this well? Um, so I think institutions should really take a step back and examine how they're operating from a student lens. And then to CG's point, invite students to be part of that and to give voice to what that's like, as opposed to you know just faculty or staff or administrators uh, doing that analysis. And I think another big thing that we wrote about in our, our article was methodological diversity and triangulation uh, of data to to look for to, to combat this idea of a, a single truth or a single narrative, but you know to to recognize we have you know, diverse learners, and so we should have diverse methods to uh, to to look at their experience. And just a, as a big step back, it's really important to acknowledge assessment practice has typically followed a Western philosophy, which tends not to account for diverse cultural context or social or environmental context. So it's something that you know we definitely need to look at the, the, the people and the populations and what they represent and, and what we're trying to measure and, and look to accommodate that more than what we've been accustomed to and more than what the practice has typically called for because historically we've we've uh, omitted a lot of voices and and conducted things in a in a way that does not necessarily uh, represent all students and and their experiences I would add one last piece of this in terms of tips and strategies, and this is this is CG again. So there's this fantastic article for people who are interested in this kind of work. It's called In Pursuit of a Culturally Anchored Methodology, and it's by Diane Hughes and Edward Seidman. And one of the things that I've seen in my doctoral work is this idea that, you know, the data do not, in fact, speak for themselves. We give them voice. And so it's really important when you're doing your data analysis and you're rounding out that assessment process that you consider who's giving voice to the data um, and how, how you are processing that information and capturing the context in which it occurred and sharing that with others. And how does, you know, Krista mentioned positionality. So how does your positionality influence how you're sharing the information? Um, how do the institutional values and norms influence the data processing? Um, who are the findings serving? Are you able to center the lived experiences of populations who are typically left at the margins. And there's there's lots of ways to push back on this, right? So, you know, you can always report on the aggregates or the means, and that's great for trends, but make sure that you're also breaking it down by different groups. Engage in that process of disaggregating your information. You know, use pluralistic methods whenever possible, whether it's, you know, through counter storytelling or videos or, um, interviews or photography, you know, integrate methods that really allow students to share their experiences in the ways that are meaningful for them. When you're talking about what counts as significant, those are great conversations. Sometimes statistics really is needed in student affairs work. That's my, that's my jam. But, you know, there's a difference between statistical significance and meaningful decision making with the information that we have. And those two things are not always the same thing. So being really clear to engage in that conversation with your leadership when they're asking those questions of you. Um, another way is like, don't assume 
heterogeneity, um, or maybe, yes, do assume heterogeneity, assume that even within group populations are really different and having diverse, diverse experiences. And when you go to make those statistical comparisons across groups, make sure that you're not, um, you know, maybe if you're a white practitioner comparing everybody up against the white norm, um, make sure that you're really comparing across all groups, run the appropriate post-hoc test um, to ensure that you're really trying to understand how students are experiencing your campus and your programs and your services in ways that serve them from their experiences. Wow, thanks. Um, that was all fantastic. I have a whole list of notes of nuggets of wisdom that I've written down. Um, and, and, you know, you all made me really think about a couple of key things is that we really need to change the nature of our work in doing assessment, both student affairs assessment or assessment in, in higher ed in general. We need to really think differently. We need to think about how do we look at our work critically um, and using critical theory as a lens through which we do our work. Um, and really one thing that really resonated for me, CG, that you talked about is looking at the structures. And so in assessment, we often take a look at the effectiveness of programs, what are students learning, what is the student experience, but we don't necessarily dig deeper to understand what are the structures that are impacting those and how might they be creating um, inequitable experiences for students. And so a lot of great ideas, a lot of great things for us to think about. Um, so I hope you continue to write about these topics, um, either in blog posts or in journal articles or present at conferences, because all three of you have some great things to share. Um, and I know um, folks listening to the podcast would love to hear more of your thoughts um, and feelings around this topic. So on behalf of uh, Anne and myself, thank you all very much for taking the time and sharing your great thoughts. And we'll continue to look for your work. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks all.